without further ado, here are MJ's most iconic basketball moments in his most iconic basketball sneakers. On March 29, 1982, the Carolina Tar Heels battled the Georgetown Hoyas for the national championship. In hindsight, this game is fascinating for a whole host of reasons. It introduced MJ to the world. It gave him his first big basketball win. It pitted him against the Hoyas' seven-foot center Patrick Ewing, who would be drafted first overall by the New York Knicks a few years later, and who would battle MJ and the Bulls many times over the next decade, including in 27 different games in the playoffs from 1989 to 1996, winning only eight of those games. And although Ewing had two shots at a chip when Jordan was off playing baseball, MJ is almost single-handedly credited with preventing an NBA championship ring from ever gracing Patrick Ewing's finger, who history now knows as one of the greatest players to never win a championship. But none of that had happened yet in March of 1982, and despite Jordan's game-clinching buzzer beater, Ewing undoubtedly had the better game with 23 points, 11 rebounds, 1 assist, 3 steals, and 2 blocks versus Jordan's 16 points, 9 rebounds, 2 assists, and 2 steals. In fact, Jordan wasn't even the best player or the number one option on his team that year. That was James Worthy who scored 28 in that game and would go on to a Hall of Fame career with 3 championships and a finals MVP with the Los Angeles Lakers. And it was Worthy that acted as the decoy in that game, leaving Jordan open on the wing, who caught and canned the ball through the hoop in one easy motion, with 16 seconds left on the clock to secure the win. Jordan would go on to play two more seasons with the Tar Heels, and he got better with every game, but that was the play that defined his pre-professional career. And as far as his footwear, he didn't have a contract with Nike, a shoe, a moniker, or a logo yet, and it was Converse who sponsored the Carolina Tar Heels that year, So despite preferring Adidas when he was off the court, during games that season, he wore the Converse Fast Breaks and the Converse Pro Leathers in white and Carolina blue colors. The Pro Leathers were what he was wearing when he made the shot. The summer before his first season as a Chicago Bull and shortly before his deal with Nike, Jordan, along with Patrick Ewing, joined the USA men's basketball team at the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles. Team USA would go on to win, netting Jordan his first gold medal and further exciting the world of sports fans to his imminent arrival on basketball's biggest stage. Converse also sponsored Team USA that summer, and as such, Michael again wore the Converse fast breaks and pro leathers during those games. A few months later, on October 26, 1984, Michael Jordan played his first game in the NBA as a Chicago Bull. He scored 16 points, had 7 assists, 6 rebounds, 4 blocks, and 2 steals. Not bad for your first at-bat. On his feet, Michael wore the Nike Airships in his team colors of white and red. Why the Airship and not the Air Jordan 1? Because Nike had just signed Jordan, just created the shoe, and it wasn't ready for him when he started the season. So they gave him the Bruce Kilgore-designed Airship, an updated version of Kilgore's popular Air Force One silhouette. Jordan would wear the airships until early 1985 when the Air Jordan 1s dropped and quickly sold in bunches when Nike created the band campaign around the shoe. Basically, the NBA sent a letter to Nike in February 1985 informing them that the black and red sneakers Jordan was wearing violated the league's rule that players' sneakers must be in team colors and must be mostly white, and that they would fine Jordan five grand every time he wore them. So Nike said, screw it, wear them, we'll pay the fine, and created a commercial about the NBA 
banning the shoes from the game. Even though the NBA never did ban the shoes, they just fined Jordan for wearing them. And the shoes the NBA was referring to at the time were the Nike Airships, not the Air Jordan 1s, which still hadn't come out yet. But it was a stroke of marketing genius on Nike's part and helped them to sell over $150 million worth of Air Jordans their first year alone. The Air Jordan 1 was ready, however, for MJ's first All-Star game on February 10, 1985 in Indianapolis, the game now infamously known as the Freezeout. Jordan was a young, brash player who arrived in the NBA with his own shoe and apparel line, a deal worth hundreds of thousands of dollars. He was averaging 28 points, 6 rebounds, and 6 assists that season, would go on to win Rookie of the Year, and some of the older heads on the East All-Star team, including Isaiah Thomas and Magic Johnson, supposedly decided to teach Jordan a lesson in humility by refusing to pass him the ball in the game kneecapping his ability to score and holding Jordan to just seven points, with half of those points coming from free throws. Now, everyone who played in that game has denied that that was the case ever since, and some of them have maintained that Jordan just had a bad game and needed to blame it on someone. Jordan himself has seemed non-committal about the freeze-out, at times insisting that that was the case, and at other times saying, who knows. But whether fantasy or reality, the freeze-out is part of Jordan lore and even lent itself to Jordan's son Marcus, who owns and operates Trophy Room, a sneaker boutique in Orlando dedicated to his father's legacy, collaborating with Jordan Brand on a special edition of the Air Jordan 1 Chicago, which is what Jordan was wearing on his feet in that game. On the Trophy Room pair, the red part of the shoes are covered in a sparkly material to make it look like the shoes are frozen in ice, and on the inside collar are sewn the words, rumor has it. On the back of the tongue tag of one of the shoes is the date of the game, February 10th, 1985, and the shoe box comes with a ticket stub to the game. Now, obviously, Marcus had to get the okay from his pops before he made the shoes, so it could be tongue-in-cheek, or it could be that MJ still feels today about the game the way he felt back in 1985. One of the players on Jordan's all-star team that year was Larry Bird, the legendary trash-talking, sharp-shooting Boston Celtic forward who was the last person to win three MVPs in a row and won three NBA championships with the team in the 80s, including in 1986 when, in the first round of the Eastern Conference playoffs, he faced off against Michael Jordan and the Bulls, who, without MJ for most of that season due to a broken foot, finished 19th out of 23 teams that year with a record of 30-52. and 52. The Celtics would sweep the Bulls in the series 3-0, but not before Jordan dropped 63 points on the Celtics in Game 2. Larry was so impressed with Jordan's performance that night that he gave the immortal and often misquoted words in a post-game interview that he is the most exciting, awesome player in the game today. I think it's just God disguised as Michael Jordan couple of quick things about that game. Jordan had just come back from a broken foot. The team doctors and the front office wanted him to sit out the entire season, but he forced his way back. This is one reason why the Air Jordan 2 is so bulky with padding, especially around the collar. The people at Nike needed to put extra protection around Michael's foot and ankle, but the Air Jordan 2 hadn't dropped yet, and in that game, Jordan was still wearing the AJ1 Chicago, but with the midsole and outsole of a Nike Dunk, because the dunk had more cushioning and it would provide Michael with better protection when he jumped. 
63 was the most points ever scored in an NBA playoff game up to that point. It was the most points ever scored at the Boston Garden, a place that was widely considered the hardest arena to play in in the league. He scored the points against the 1986 Boston Celtics, considered by many to be one of the top three greatest teams in NBA history. And despite Jordan's performance, the Bulls would go on to lose that game in double overtime behind Bird's also impressive 36 points, 12 rebounds, and 8 assists. Three years after the freeze-out of 1985, Jordan was back in the All-Star game, this time in Chicago, where he would perform two amazing feats in two amazing sneakers. First off, he would battle Dominic Wilkins in the dunk contest that year, back when NBA stars actually participated in the dunk contest. It was there that Jordan would perform his immortal free-throw line dunk, a nod to his hero Dr. J, who did the same dunk way back in 1976 at the ABA Slam Dunk Contest. However, while Dr. J wore Converse Pro Leather joints on his feet, the same shoes Mike wore in college, on Michael's feet were the brand new Air Jordan 3s in the white cement colorway. Later that weekend, Jordan won his first All-Star MVP in another colorway of the AJ3, the Black Cements, considered by many to be the best Jordan 3 colorway of all time, despite the fact that that All-Star game was the only time Jordan wore the Black Cement version of the shoe on his feet. He did, however, wear the next iteration of the Black Cement throughout the 1989 playoffs, including a series rematch between the Bulls and the Cleveland Cavaliers in the first round of the Eastern Conference. The Bulls beat the Cavaliers in 88 and then went on to lose to the Pistons in the semifinals, who themselves went on to lose to the Lakers in the finals. In 89, the Bulls again took the Cavs out in the first round, but what made the matchup significant to the deeply competitive Michael Jordan, who tends to take things personally in case you didn't know, was that the Cavs beat the Bulls in every regular season game of that season, six in total, and were therefore pegged as the favorites to win the series. It was in the series' deciding fifth game, with six seconds left on the clock, that Jordan caught the ball and elevated for a drifting left jumper over Craig Elo to can the basket and win the series, leading to his iconic airborne fist pumps in his Jordan 4 Black and Reds or Black Cements a shoe which is now considered by most the greatest Jordan 4 colorway of all time. It was also at the expense of broken-hearted Cavaliers fans that Jordan had another of his most iconic moments a season later when on March 28, 1990, he scored a career-high 69 points on Cleveland with a pair of Air Jordan 5 Fire Reds on his feet. To add to the 69, he also grabbed 18 rebounds, dished out six assists, got four steals and a block, shooting an outrageous 62% from the field and 91% from the free throw line. Truly one of the greatest individual basketball performances of all time. But despite all of these iconic moments and otherworldly statistical achievements, Jordan still hadn't won a championship leading into the 1990-91 season. After seven seasons, the word on the street was that Jordan could do it all except close the deal when it mattered most. But with Phil Jackson behind the wheel of the team since 1989, preaching to the Bulls and to Michael most of all that if they wanted to win it, they had to do it as a team, MJ and the Bulls finally found themselves for the first time in the NBA Finals in 1991 against the aging but still incredible Los Angeles Lakers. 
now without Kareem and his skyhook, but still led by the ever-charismatic, ever-poetically-passing Magic Johnson. The narrative around the season became all about Michael versus Magic, old guard versus new. This matchup was also coming a year after a very strange yet intriguing idea that Magic Johnson had to play Michael in a one-on-one pay-per-view matchup in Vegas with the winner of the game getting to take home a million bucks. The NBA wasn't interested in having their players promoted like fighters in a boxing match, and Isaiah Thomas, who was president of the Players Union at that time and no friend of Michael Jordan's for various reasons, also said no, due to it setting a bad precedent. Jordan also said he wasn't all that interested in an interview conducted after the idea had already been shut down due to the monetary aspect and the fact that he was trying to move away from the image of himself as a one-on-one player like Magic Johnson was and be seen as a team player. Which is what he was in 1991. He shared the ball. A lot. Racking up over 11 assists a game in that series while still averaging 31 points. He went that season from looking to score on every play to looking to facilitate a basket from whoever was in the best position to score on every play. And it paid off. The Lakers stole Game 1 on a buzzer beater from Jordan's old Tar Heels teammate Sam Perkins, but Chicago came back in Game 2 and blew the Lakers out of the water. And it wasn't how young and talented the Bulls looked or how old and tired the Lakers looked in that game that has had everyone talking about it ever since. It was Jordan's iconic switcheroo layup that caused the equally iconic exclamation from Marv Albert, Oh, a spectacular move by Michael Jordan! Jordan was bringing the ball up the middle of the painted area, elevated for a dunk, then decided, in midair mind you, to switch the ball to his other hand and lay it up off the backboard instead. It was a decision that would take most people 10 minutes to make and to figure out and took Jordan about half a second. It is, to this day, as Marv pointed out, one of the most spectacular moves ever seen on an NBA court. And Jordan did it in a pair of Air Jordan 6 infrareds which he was also wearing when the Bulls took games three and four without much fuss and finished the Lakers off with game five by seven points. Jordan officially removed the torch from Johnson's grasp, thank you very much, got that elusive first chip and would go on to keep winning five more times in five more finals matchups, dominating professional basketball throughout the 1990s. Jordan wore an interesting colorway of the Air Jordan 7 when he hit six three-pointers in a row against the Portland Trailblazers in June of 1992, causing his immortal shrug reaction to his own greatness and purposefully silencing every single person who had been entertaining the conversation that Clyde the Glide Drexler might just be as good at basketball as Jordan was. Jordan didn't like hearing that then, he doesn't like hearing that now, and he made it a point to make a point out of Drexler in that series. According to Lore and to the Last Dance documentary, Magic and Michael were playing cards the night before Game 1 when Jordan said to Johnson, I'm going to kill this dude tomorrow. Now anyone can say that, but what made MJ the GOAT was that he did that, and he was wearing a pair of Air Jordan 7 charcoals on his feet when he did. The J7 Charcoals are now known as the Raptors because they are outfitted in the Raptors' late 90s color scheme of black, red, and purple. But, of course, in 1992, the Raptors weren't a thing yet, and the purple was added to the shoe just to make it pop out a bit. 
but it gives Jordan fans who are also Raptors fans, like myself, double the reason to track down a pair today. The Bulls will go on to win that series, win their second championship, and set themselves up for a three-peat a year later. But in the meantime, in the wake of a new rule that allowed NBA players to play for their country in the Olympics, Team USA was able to assemble the greatest basketball team of all time, the Dream Team, for the 1992 Olympics in Barcelona. Along with Jordan, who initially didn't want to participate and only agreed when he was assured Magic and Bird were joining, the team included Charles Barkley, considered at that time the best player in the league next to Michael, John Stockton, Carl Malone, Scottie Pippen, Clyde Drexler, David Robinson, Chris Mullen, and Jordan's 1984 Olympics teammate Patrick Ewing. The Dream Team annihilated the competition, easily winning a gold medal for themselves and, for sneakerheads, featured a new colorway of the Air Jordan 7 done up especially for the games called, simply, the Air Jordan 7 Olympics, still the most coveted Air Jordan 7 colorway to date. A year later, in June 1993, Jordan and the Bulls would complete their first three-peat and the first three-peat since the Celtics won eight in a row from 1959 to 1966 when they defeated Barkley and the Phoenix Suns in six games. On Michael's feet that day were the Air Jordan 8 playoffs, a damn fine-looking sneaker in all black with a few white and red hits on the midsole. And then, due to tragedy and due to fame-related burnout, Michael Jordan retired. Despite being at the peak of his playing powers, he needed a break and quit basketball to try his hand at baseball for the 94 and 95 seasons, both of which were won by the Hakeem Olajuwon-led Houston Rockets. But Jordan returned, and on March 18, 1995, he announced it with the famous facts which contained only two words, I'm back. Jordan wasn't in basketball shape, however, and despite the media cyclone that followed Michael and the Bulls everywhere he went, he struggled in his first few games, until March 29, 1995, when Jordan returned to Madison Square Garden in New York, his favorite place to play, and dropped a double nickel, meaning 55 points, on the Knicks, wearing the number 45 on his back in the Air Jordan 10 black, white, and red Chicago colorway on his feet. And although he couldn't help the Bulls overcome the Shaq and Penny Orlando Magic a few months later, with Dennis Rodman now in tow, the Bulls ripped through the 95-96 season toward their fourth championship in June of 96. But not before the team became the most winningest team in NBA history when, on April 21st, 1996, they won their 72nd game, becoming the first team to lose only 10 games in an entire season. Jordan was wearing the Jordan 11 Concord, considered by many, including Jordan himself, to be the best Air Jordan basketball sneaker of all time when they broke that record. A few months later, on June 16th, wearing the Jordan 11 Black and Red, or Breads, or Playoffs, as they are also called, Jordan and the Bulls won that fourth championship on Father's Day, Jordan's first chip without his dad, who was murdered in 1993. Scenes of Jordan sobbing on the locker room floor after the win are heartbreaking. On November 15th of that year, a few weeks into the 96-97 season, Space Jam was released in theaters. It was a hit, shot Jordan into a new level of fame, introduced him to a new audience of fans, and shot Jordan-related marketing through the roof. Before Space Jam dropped, it was difficult to imagine Michael Jordan could get any more famous than he already was, 
but he did. And for the Jordan sneaker freaks, Space Jam was exciting for another reason, introducing us to the Air Jordan 11 Space Jam colorway, an all-black upper with a white midsole and Concord purple hits. The Space Jam, along with the Concord and bread colorways, are the most acclaimed and popular Air Jordans to this day. The Bulls were back in the playoffs that season, this time against the 64-18 and 18 Utah Jazz and league MVP Carl Malone. It pissed Jordan off to no end that Malone was named MVP over him. He took it personally, and he made sure the Jazz suffered as a result. The Bulls beat the Jazz four games to two in the finals for their fifth chip and another back-to-back performance for the team. But the game from that series that was entered into the Michael Jordan history books was Game 5, which has come to be known as the flu game. The original reporting on Jordan from that game was that he had the flu, but in the last dance documentary, Jordan actually says it was food poisoning as a result of a suspect pizza Jordan ate all to himself the night before the game. And despite being up all night violently ill and barely making it to the arena at all, Jordan played the entire game, a feat which he has said was the hardest thing I've ever had to do. His stat line that night was 38 points, 7 rebounds, 5 assists, 3 steals, and a block. He played 44 of the game's 48 minutes, and if you've ever had the flu, food poisoning, or any other illness that makes you vacate your stomach and bowels all night long, then you know how inhuman it is to put up that kind of a performance behind that level of effort in that state. On feet, Jordan was wearing the Air Jordan 12 black and red, which will forever be known as the Air Jordan 12 flu game, arguably the most coveted Jordan 12 colorway to this day. The Bulls and Jazz would meet again a year later in the 1998 NBA Finals, a year in which Jordan would take home the MVP and the All-Star MVP and the Finals MVP when they beat the Jazz in six games on the back of Jordan's immortal last shot. A shot that fittingly encapsulated MJ's entire career up to that point and sent him off into his second retirement the way a goat should be with a clutch time game-winning jumper from the elbow after crossing over a good defender on a great team to clinch a sixth chip and a second three-peat. And until Mike couldn't help himself but suit back up for a crappy team he was part owner of, several years later, this was the last shot many of us thought we would ever see Michael Jordan shoot as a professional basketball player. On his feet, he wore the Air Jordan 14 black and reds, known after that day and known forevermore as the Jordan 14 last shot. But it wasn't the last shot. It should have been. I'll bet even Jordan thinks it should have been, but it wasn't. And on September 25th, 2001, he announced his unretirement, returning to the NBA not as a Chicago Bull, but as a Washington Wizard, a team he was until he joined it as a player, president and part owner of. To be fair, Jordan's time as a Wizard is underrated. He averaged 23 points per game, six rebounds and five assists in his first season back, He took the Wizards from being one of the worst teams in the league to a playoff team with a winning record, and if it wasn't for the fact that Jordan was constantly injured, particularly in his second season, they would have gotten even further, and Jordan might have even secured a sixth MVP. But his knees couldn't take it anymore, and he played his last game on April 16, 2003, in a pair of Air Jordan 18 white and sport royals, bringing to a close not only the best basketball career of all time, but the best basketball sneaker career of all time. I mean, seriously, if 
all you had in your sneaker closet were the 19 Jordans, the Chicago's with the dunk soles don't count because they were never released to the public. We talked about here, you would have a Hall of Fame shoe collection to rival anyone's. Because no matter what Kanye West, Virgil Abloh, rest in peace, Travis Scott, Stan Smith, Chuck Taylor, Steve Caballero, Walt Frazier, or LeBron James accomplished or will accomplish, none of them, not one, will have had the career that Michael Jordan had. And beyond everything else, beyond the hype, the status symbol, the price tag, the collabs, or the exclusivity, at the end of the day, we love Jordans because we love Jordan. We want to wear and own his shoes because we want to wear and own a piece of him, a piece of history, a piece of the greatest professional sports career of all time, a piece of the greatest competitive athlete of all time. Oh, you disagree? You think there's someone else? Prove it. I'll wait. Next week, we'll be talking all about New Balance, the history of the brand and its ascension from comfy dad shoe to one of the premier sneaker brands for sneaker heads and collaborators alike. Hope to see you there.